Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. This is Matt Tullis. We have a special podcast this week. For the first time ever, we have an in-studio guest. Brian Mockenhop is a contributing editor at Reader's Digest and Esquire and is the nonfiction editor at the Journal of Military Experience. He writes regularly for The Atlantic and Outside, and his work has also appeared in Pacific Standard, Backpacker, The New York Times Magazine, and Chicago. Mockenhop is also an Iraq war veteran, having served two tours as an infantryman with the 10th Mountain Division. Since leaving the U.S. Army in 2005, he has written extensively on military and veteran affairs. One of his most recent works was a piece published exclusively by Byliner. It's called The Living and the Dead and chronicles the traumatic experience of a group of Marines in Afghanistan. That story won the 2013 Michael Kelly Award and was a finalist for the National Magazine Award for Feature Writing. Brian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Matt. Uh, Brian, can we start off by having you tell us a little bit about the story um, that, that was just published on Byliner.com? Uh, the, the Living and the Dead? Um, living and the Dead, it's, a, uh, it's the story of a group of Marines who were together in northern Marja in Helmand province of Afghanistan. Um, and they had suffered uh, a couple months into their deployment. They had a couple, uh, two casualties in pretty quick succession. Uh, the first was a Corporal Ian Muller. He was a team leader, stepped on a bomb and was killed and then a week and a half later, uh, the platoon sergeant, Jimmy Malachowski, was killed also by a buried bomb. A lot of the story deals with uh, one of the main characters, Tom Worrell, who was a squad leader at the time that Ian was killed. Uh, Ian was the guy just below him, and Jimmy Malachowski was his boss, was Tom Worrell's boss and the platoon sergeant, and also his, uh, his best friend over there in Afghanistan. And Tom had to step into that role uh, after Jimmy was killed and he became the platoon sergeant. And so the story looks at the events about the guys being out um, on patrol, what they were doing in that area of operations, uh, the fights that they had had with the Taliban, uh, deals extensively with the days um, that both of those guys were killed, and then also the experiences of their families back home uh, when they found out about uh, their you know, boys being killed, and then the aftermath once the Marines came home of uh, everything that they brought home with them after a pretty successful deployment, as the military would define it. They really had a huge impact on the area that they were in. Attacks were way down. They had helped stand up a local security force. So they could look at that as... um, they had done their jobs and they had made some real progress, but they came home just wrecked. I mean, I've been writing about the wars um, for a while. Um, I know from personal experience, friends with uh, post-traumatic um, stress and from writing about uh, guys who have been through these experiences and these guys were just, they were just hollowed out. They were just devastated. 
and uh, for months, months afterwards. And so that's um, story takes it through uh, several months into them coming home and trying to put their lives back together and figure out what it all was. How did you? Um how did you end up with this group of guys, I guess, and also backpedaling a little bit? How, how did this story come about? What made you want to write about this idea of, of men having to replace their, their boss uh, in the battlefield? So it's something that occurred to me. Um, actually, you know, oddly enough, not really when I was in the Army, when it could have happened, because then I just took it as a matter of course that you're trained for that, and if someone goes down... You deal with it immediately. You you know make sure other people are safe. You get the medical attention. Someone has to, someone has to be the leader. Someone has to, you know, keep everyone in line and make sure the objective is accomplished and take care of the people under them. But in covering the wars as a journalist, uh, it occurred to me how different that is from how civilians would view it. That the military takes it for granted. That's just. That is what happened. That, that's what happens in war, and that that has to be a a definite and uh, immediate transition that the next person steps in. But it's really a phenomenal moment in someone's life that they have to take over their boss's job in a way and at a time they never would have wanted, and the people under them have to adjust to new leadership under very stressful circumstances, possibly immediately there's bombs going off you're being shot at this person you might have looked to as a as a mentor as a friend um, as the person who is keeping you safe in a war zone is gone either you know terribly injured or dead um, so that was something that I had it, it bounced around in my head in going out and embedding with troops and in covering the wars but I was never quite sure how I would tell the story because there's some logistical problems involved that when you want to go in bed in Afghanistan you have to talk to them beforehand and get approval and you're going to go to a certain area say okay I want to go to Helmand province well you know you have to request a unit otherwise you're just going to go and they're going to send you out somewhere and you're going to end up spending two weeks and really not finding the stories you want and this was a very specific story I was looking for so one you'd have to look for a unit that had had some casualties and you'd have to uh make sure they had enough time left in their deployment for you to then get your travel arranged, get over there, spend time on the ground with them. Um, but beyond that, it's a kind of, you know, there's an issue of tactfulness. It's, it's a ghoulish kind of request to say, hey, I want to come all the way over there and come out and talk to you guys about one of the worst days of your lives. Um, fortunately, I was in Afghanistan for a long stretch of time. I think that time I was there for seven or eight weeks doing multiple stories. The Marines I was with, that was just a two-week chunk of that time. Uh, from an internet cafe in Kandahar, I had done some research on the unit, that, uh, the battalion that I was going to, and I found out they had taken a couple casualties a few months before I was going to be there. And they were both, both of these guys were in leadership positions. I didn't know at the time that they were in the same platoon. But I got out to the battalion, and I said, I'd like to go out to 3rd Platoon of Fox Company. And... They wanted to know why, and I was talking to the battalion um, executive officer, and I explained, uh, explained the story idea to him, and he got it immediately. You know, he said, that's actually something I've never seen told, and I think that there's a lot to be said for 
what these guys do out there and the conditions that they work and live and die under. And um, so they hooked me up with Third Platoon and Tom actually came in on a resupply and he's the one, he's the first guy I met. He came into this tent where I was staying and I said, hey, I'm the reporter who's going to be out with you. And I explained the story to him. And the only reason the story worked is because Tom also right away said, you know what, that's really interesting. And was on board because he knew that what it would involve. And I didn't realize at the time, I didn't know the full extent of the story. So I didn't realize what Tom was actually agreeing to, that he was ready to in the middle of, he was still leading men in combat. I was going to go out on combat patrols with him. And, okay, now let me talk to you about these two things that you are completely racked with guilt by. So, you know, Tom is what made the story work. And then I think by way of Tom, who had then become the platoon sergeant, him giving is okay. I think the younger Marines looked at that and said, well, um, if he's talking to him, I guess, I guess he's okay. So we'll talk to him about our, you know, experiences with these guys and our memories and what we go through every day out here. Now, how much, uh, you mentioned that you were in the Army uh, and you served two tours in Iraq. Um, how much does that help you as a reporter when you're out, you know, in, in a battlefield? Uh, and, and, I mean, A, with knowing kind of what's going on, but also B, with, I guess, maybe some credibility with the people you're talking to. Does that, I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? It definitely makes a difference, uh, for better and worse sometimes. But I would say one of the most immediate effects is it cuts down on the, uh, the vetting process. You know, journalists, and for some good reasons, journalists aren't always held in the highest regard by the military. Um, and a lot of times it's for sensational. A lot of times TV reporting, some of the magazine reporting. But I will say, by and large, of the journalists that I have met who are over there, it is a... It is a very professional, very skilled, uh, very curious, empathetic, dedicated group of people that is spending time going out to these austere locations because they want to tell these stories. Mm -hmm. And I think the service members connect with that, that someone cares enough to come out and spend time with them and hear their stories out where it's happening. So there is that, but certainly having been in some of those situations, I mean, everything every war is different everyone's experience is different but there is something to having worn the uniform and having carried a weapon in combat it's different than just having been in that same environment that being said i mean being in that environment is very powerful um as a way to form that relationship and break down some of those barriers whether i'd had military service or not because uh, there's less explaining that needs to happen you can ask them, how do you feel when you go out on patrol? And it's not like a civilian asking them at home. When I ask them that question, they know, like, well, they're thinking, well, obviously, it scares the shit out of you, too, because it's scary, because there's bombs everywhere. You're asking a much more specific question. How do you prepare? How do you get your head in the game? You know, what do you think about when you're out there? You're able to start the conversation at a much deeper, more nuanced level. Um, I think... Having military experience, uh, the same as reporters who have co experience covering the military, that just helps you. You can, again, start at a deeper level of the conversation. You don't have to ask as many dumb questions. Um, you know. But that being said, there is a trap in that 
that I've had um, <laughs> I've had conversations with guys that they're like um, answering a question or they will immediately start at a deeper level um, and they'll say, well, you know what this is like. like well, that's true. I do know what this is like, but my readers don't. So explain it to me. So sometimes you do want to just be able to cut into it and get to the, you know, get to the point of it with them. But, um, I've also run into a problem though. Um, a couple times that there's a, of an expectation that, Oh, well you come from us. So your, your allegiance, your loyalty is with us. And, you know, I try to tell them it's not, my allegiance is also not with the news organization that I'm there representing. My, my allegiance is with the story. And it's rarely a problem because I think most often when I explain to them what the story is that I'm writing and I try as hard as I can to, um, to have a full enough understanding of what I am trying to accomplish so that I am not even mistakenly misinterpreting what I'm doing, you know, and then I tell them, this is what I'm writing about. And yeah, there's some difficult things. And, you know, I think a lot of times people are okay with that, even if some things are being portrayed that are um, not the first things you'd want out there. But if you can reassure someone that in totality that you are doing your best to be fair and objective and to get at the truth of it in a way that they will respect, then I think um, that that resonates with them. But there's, there's definitely, I think, varying levels of concern among you out with troops. And, you know, they... They wonder about what happens if he sees something that's bad or, you know, and that doesn't often happen. Um, but I think as a journalist with troops in that environment, I find myself having to check myself or just sort of do occasional self assessments of um, how I'm operating in that environment because I need to keep in mind that these guys are there doing something that is their job. And they did not ask to have a journalist out there. And their jobs are stressful. And they come back and maybe the, the conversations they have or they just want to kick back and watch a movie. But you're with them. It's like a reality show. And you're with them 24 hours a day. And so, yeah, anything's fair game. They know I'm a, they know I'm a journalist. They know I have a notebook out. But... You know, I think it's a balancing act. Sometimes you just have to be able to respect that they didn't ask to have you there. Their bosses, it's a benefit on the strategic level to have the media covering the battlefield. For these guys who are 19 years old and out, you know, going on patrols and getting in firefights with the Taliban every day, it doesn't benefit them to have a journalist around writing down when they're freaking out because they're just so angry and frustrated about something so you know it's a balance it's not it's not necessarily you know it's not all fair game um brian is here in studio with us because he is visiting the campus of ashland university for the river teeth nonfiction conference uh he just gave a talk along with earl swift uh it was titled almost like you were there the necessity of reporting to scene building reconstruction and remembrance uh, brian i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about uh, some of the things that you saw while you were in afghanistan that you observed that were absolutely crucial to telling the story the lives and the dead 
you know, everything from starting with the compound that they lived in. I could have seen some pictures. They could have described it to me, but it wouldn't have been the same to be there, uh, to be there with the heat and the dust, but to come in in an armored, you know, convoy, you go through the serpentine wire, you get off, you walk into the compound, you know, just understand the dimensions of it, but also the feel of this place that was home to them. And especially when they got there, you know, it was Indian country. It was surrounded on all sides. And this was their little bit of a safe haven, but understanding where they live and their cots and stuff that they have laying around and the boxes you'd see sort of spilled open of care packages from home. What kind of things that they're obviously asking for, you know, some socks and some tuna packs. And, but then getting into the specifics of the experiences that these guys had, you know, being able to sit with Tom in his room that he used to share with Jimmy. And now Jimmy's gone and he says, that's where he slept. And that's his flag on the wall. And then he tells me a story about why there's a pirate flag hanging on the wall. And the American flags, they both had one. And they carried them on other tours. And what had happened the day when he found out that Ian had died, how he had pounded his fists on the desk in the this plywood desk with the radios on it over in the corner of the room. Being able to see that stuff went a long way to being able to recreate it and write about it. Um, but then being out... Uh, out in the fields, out on patrol, gain a sense of what their interactions are like with Afghan civilians, with the Afghan police forces, how they carry themselves, if they have a sense of trepidation or if there's a cockiness, how they um, interact with the elders in the town. All of that stuff helps me backfill everything I don't know because I wasn't there to experience it. And it wasn't exactly the same, but it's basically a patrol is a patrol different things happen on it, but how they get ready for patrol. When they throw their body armor on, how they automatically go into a single file line and snake out, and then they, you know, they have their heads are moving around, they're scanning targets with their rifles. So all of that was essential. But then with some specifics, like I'd say one of the most critical times was Tom took me to the place where Ian got killed, and he then stood there and I videotaped it. And he said, okay, this was happening. And that's, Ian flew over this tree and he landed in that field. I ran up over here, I was in this, jumped over this ditch. Doc came up this way. We think the trigger man was over here. Really essential to, in a believable way, talk about the dirt road they're walking down. What it's like, this building tension as they're getting closer to where this bomb is at. And then the other moment was going back into the compound where the platoon sergeant, Jimmy Malachowski, had been killed. This was a compound that they were going to turn it over to the Afghan police, but they had to sweep it for bombs. Tom and the dog handler, Matt Westbrook, and another Marine went in to sweep it. Tom and the other Marine had uh, metal detectors, you know, um, bomb detectors, and Matt had, a, had Holly, a yellow lab, trained to smell explosives. They swept the compound twice. They walked out. All these other Marines, including the platoon sergeant, walked in. Uh, he stepped on a bomb. Tom runs in. Jimmy's on the ground, terribly wounded in the upper legs, and soon after dies before he can be flown out on a helicopter. I was with Tom the first time he went back to that compound because the Afghans ended up not using it, and then they decided they did want to use it. And Tom, we were in a meeting across the little village, and he was almost incredulous. He's like, the one where Staff Sergeant got killed? He couldn't believe that that's, they then wanted to use that. And he said, okay, I will sweep it for you one more time, but that's it. So I went back with him while his Marines swept the compound. 
and I stood with him over the hole in the ground. And that was um, such a powerful moment, just being able to be with him as he stands there and looks at the hole. I didn't ask him questions. I just stood back a couple paces and just watched because that was, I'm not, that's not my moment. It's not right. It's not fair to say anything and ask him anything because, yeah, a story is a story, but this is his life. And he had so much in that moment to process and work through. And I asked him later, what was that like standing over that hole? And I could have asked him when he was back here, but then I also got to be with him because we had to go back to the patrol base. And so then we walked back and saw that he just had to get on with his day. He had to get guys once again safely back home. So uh, things like that, you know, you just got to, you got to be there. Yeah, I, um, you mentioned, uh, you, you mentioned that you, you, you recorded some video. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you take notes and how, how you keep track of the things you, you see and hear, um, specifically when you're, when you're, when you're in a battlefield? Uh, or is it any different? Is it, is it pretty much the same wherever you're, whatever type of story you're doing? Um, there's nothing vastly different from it. I have pouches on the front of my body armor and I have, uh, in this case I had a, I had a DSLR and so I had a camera bag, but I was carrying that, but I had, um, I had a, um, a, a digital recorder, a small Olympus, like tiny one that turns on really fast. I also had a zoom recorder if I wanted better audio. Um, and that was, I didn't end up using it that much on this trip, but I had gotten that zoom recorder after an experience in Afghanistan that I was so frustrated that I didn't have decent audio because I was in the middle of this like, just chaotic firefight and there was so much going on and it would have, and then there's a medevac bird coming in. It just would have been really powerful audio. I only added on a little record. I take them both one redundancy, but the small one's so much easier. But I know it's not something I would actually want the audio of for, you know, for reproduction quality. I'll have that on even if I'm taking notes um, because a lot of times then there's in the background someone comes up and like, hey Sergeant World this guy says this and you get atmospherics but also just taking me back what it sounds like what it was like and, but I'll take notes um, I'll take notes in a notebook and then at night look through and just read through it just let it sink into my head a little bit and then sketch out things that are missing things I want to make sure I hit on um, it's a great luxury embedding because you can't, <laughs> you can't screw it up by forgetting to ask a question. And that's really wonderful because I was with these guys for a week and a half. Um, and what that allows you, one, is that I was going to find out about a traumatic, sensitive event that had happened. I didn't ask anyone about it for the first three days. I just went, I went on patrol with them. I talked to them about life there. What are you guys doing out here? What's, it, what's the situation been like with the Taliban? Um, how often do you get mail? Whatever it might be. Or just watching movies with them. Just bullshitting about things. And then I had a level of understanding once it got to be time to start asking specific questions. But along the way, I already knew a ton because they knew I wanted, was there to talk about those guys. And so they'd just bring it up. 
oh, we used to do this with Ian all the time. Or Jimmy and I were having this conversation one day, which then brings up more things I might not have thought to ask that I can dive deeper into later. Because there was never a concern that I only had a certain amount of time to get the information. You know, because when I was ready to talk, like, you only go on a couple of patrols a day. There's a lot of downtime there. You want, you can just sit and talk to someone for three hours. So huge luxury to have that level of, um, that level of access. Have you gotten, uh, what type of feedback did you get from, from some of the guys who were in the story, especially Tom? Tom really, um, Tom liked it a lot. He, um, and I was, I was concerned, um, as I am a lot of times, you know, I care about everything I write about. I don't think I've ever cared as much as I have about this story. Um, and especially with this kind of story, the only people I care what they think about it are the people who are involved in it. And so getting his okay, because it wasn't one of those situations that you write some stories and you know that there's something, there might be something in there that you have to put in there that the other person would rather not have in there. And then you're going to see what they say about it. But you know it just has to go in. There wasn't anything like that in this because Tom was incredibly open. So anything he would have had a problem with would have been because I had misinterpreted it or screwed it up. And so hearing, you know, that okay um, meant a lot because then it, that was a good indication that I had um, gotten it, you know, at least a lot right. But the same thing from uh, Matt Westbrook, um, Matt Westbrook's mom, uh, you know, and because this it was interesting because this was on um, through Byliner, it's sold on Amazon. So there's comments on Amazon and so, Tom left a comment talking about it. Um, Matt Westbrook's mom and a couple other people said, I didn't, Tom's uh, uncle as well said, I didn't understand a lot of this until I read this. You know, thank you for shedding light on what they had gone through. Um, Suzanne Muller, uh, Ian's mom, I've spoken to her several times after it, um, after it had come out. And um, because, you know, the, the work that we do, especially this kind of super deep dive into people's lives, I mean, we take it for granted as journalists. Well, that's what happens. You go out and you're a reporter and you ask questions and it gets published. And I think sometimes we convince ourselves that there's the payoff is, well, I don't even know, for the people who are sharing this. For Tom, it was um, a acknowledgement of the difficult situation that his Marines were fighting in um, and that it's uh, helping people understand if they can learn if they can get something out of what he had gone through to understand that just the complexities and that just the difficult choices and just kind of the horrors of it all um you know for the parents like Suzanne Moore I think it was um that their kids wouldn't be forgotten that they're able to talk about um their kids experiences and it wasn't in a way of you know, eulogizing them and only putting out the good stuff, but they saw something very valid and important that 
their kids made the decision to go off and fight. And so they weren't, they didn't varnish this stuff. You know, and Suzanne Muller was pretty um, pragmatic about some of this stuff. When Ian went over to Afghanistan, she watched YouTube videos of firefights. Uh, when they came to tell her that Ian was dead, she was in the middle of reading Osama bin Laden biography because she said they live in Vermont um, and there's a lot of uh, people are inclined towards, you know, like not, you know, pacifists. And she wanted to be able to intelligently and articulately talk about Ian being off fighting in the war. So, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't someone who would completely, you know, like bury herself in other hobbies and just be like, I'm not even going to think about this until Ian gets home and I don't want to think about him killing. He told them on the phone that he got his first kill and she let out like a little cheer. And this is a very, this is a religious family. This is, and it wasn't out of calcis. It was, she was so concerned. She did not want to do anything to alienate Ian. She wanted to make sure that he felt comfortable, that he always felt like he had people he could share what was going on that she didn't want him to come home um, or be over there and feel like the world was closing in and getting smaller because he could only talk to his friends and that she would lose that relationship with him so how hard would that be as a mom to be supportive when your son calls and is kind of happy because he just killed someone I mean how can you imagine that when, you, when you're raising your kid and he's little and they live on a farm in Vermont and Ian was all into outdoor sports and, and, the, and yet you come to that moment in your life. So that they were willing to share that with me, um, you know, it's, it's such a huge privilege. And yes, you know, fortunately she was um, happy with the outcome. I mean, as happy as you can happy as you can be. She, she found some value in it. We've been talking with Brian Mockenhop, winner of the 2013 Michael Kelly Award for his story, The Living and the Dead. We've linked to an excerpt from the story at gangrythepodcast.com. You can also find it on byliner.com. Brian, thanks for joining us. Thanks, man. It was great. Just a reminder, but you can download Gangry the Podcast on iTunes or find links to all of our episodes at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Gangry the Podcast is also now available on Stitcher Radio On Demand. Stitcher is an award-winning free mobile app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows on demand. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the app stores. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at Gangry Podcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University. This episode was produced by Steve Cease. Our intro music comes from Noah Heyman. I'm your host, Matt Tullis.